0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Let's go to God's Word. We're going to be starting in Hebrews chapter 12, reading in verse 1 through 13. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is God's word. We don't have much left to cover in this book, and this will naturally feel like the climax of the conclusion. It's the climax of the end of this letter from the author of Hebrews to these Hebrews living in Jerusalem in the first century. And as we've been down this series and learning through this, you've noticed that we've we've reflected so much on this, this people that are struggling in their life. They are discouraged. They're dejected. They're they're willing to give up. And you know this is kind of getting to the end and getting to the climax of this conclusion with the increase of words like, therefore, and so then, and now let us. And there's a lot of words like this because now we're applying the things that we have been taught and the things we've been learning about. It's a letter written to a people that are so beaten up, uh, so tired, so weary, And they're toying with the idea of just throwing their hands up, stopping. And so this encourager, this pastor comes along to encourage them, giving them examples of those who have suffered in their faith and yet endured and the reward that they have been given. Uh, They are encouraged that Jesus is greater than everything and everyone for all times. And much of this letter has been exhortation. It's been a lot of encouragement mostly it's been centered on this idea that Jesus is better, he's, he's greater, he is the worst that comes from God's hand is always better than the best of the world. And I heard a, a comment the other day that really, that really stung, kind of talking about our culture as, as Americans today in our society, but I think there's some truth to it. And the comment was this, there has never been a culture with a lower pain threshold than ours seeing some nods and some smiles. Bothered by everything, offended by everyone. Every offense is the greatest suffering that could ever be experienced. Our culture screams loudly about everything, points out every error. Every voice is the loudest voice in the room. And we've never had greater access to, to pleasure never had greater access to recreation and knowledge and information, and yet isolation, anxiety, depression, and confusion has never been higher. It's an interesting time to be alive. What does Christian faith look like in the midst of this? And Things are a lot different than they were in the first century, but some things remain the same. There's always temptation to sin, there's always struggle, there's always oppression, there's always persecution for our faith, and there's always difficulty in this world. Until Jesus comes back to take away all the consequence of sin and pain of sin, we'll continue to have to endure and suffer in the midst of a culture that doesn't know, love, or worship God. And there will be times when we want to say, is this worth it? We want to throw our hands up. And so we come to this conclusion what is then faith? What does genuine Christian faith look like right now, today, in the midst of your struggle, your suffering? In the previous chapter, if you remember, lists these, this huge catalog of men and women who were commended for their faith in the midst of struggle. Life was hard, and they trusted God, and they endured, and they were commended for their faith. And these are such encouraging passages, such encouraging stories of men and women. And we are to look at these men and women and their stories of faith, and we are to imitate them and to implement their kind of faith, remembering that God is faithful, he is trustworthy. But even them, they're kind of, they, they are kind of still at a distance from us, right? They're, kind of, they're a long time ago. Our, the most recent example is still thousands of years old. And so for us, it still seems like a distance, from a distance. And for these first century Christians, it was even at a distance. And so now the author shifts from stories of faith that are distant to now giving attention to them in the present. A picture of genuine faith for them, street level, living for Christ. What does it look like? And he uses the analogy and metaphor of the idea of endurance, running a race. Running a race, a long race that is at times agonizing. A life of faith is described like a runner in a race. We are running. We are like runners in a race. We are not like ones going to the vending machine to put in some effort and get the blessing, the blessed life. And, and then when things are difficult, say, well, what happened? Well, we just got to go back and get that good thing. No, we're in a race. We're running a marathon. And just like any race, endurance is difficult. It's a long distance, agonizing race. I took one of those genetic tests, you know, that can tell you like which gene you have that expresses itself in an athletic trait, whether you're good at like quick Jolts of power or long and stretches of endurance, and the test said that um, you're you're not running very far, buddy. That's what it said. (laughs) So more of a like a a quick power, but I disagree with that test because I'm I'm actually uh, not good at either of them. (laughs) And so and so there's these genes that express themselves in certain way. Like there are people that are really good at long distance. You know, some people are really good. I just I I run long distance. Some are really fast And, and sprinters. Well, here's the point, running is agony, and that's actually the Greek word for race is agona. What do we call this? What do you, what do you call this when we're running really fast? Let's call it agony, because that's, that's what it is. That's where we get the word, agony, agona. And I, I know some of you say, no, running is awesome. I love running. It's, it's like the runner's high. Have you ever experienced it? It's like, no, you don't love running. I think you love the fruit of running, right? You love feeling good. You love the endorphins. You love the out, getting outside. You, you love what it produces. The best thing about running is the end, yeah? <laughs> the, best about, the best thing about running is stopping running. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let's all agree. That's the best part. So it's, it's agony. And that's what the word race means. So a a life of genuine, committed faith requires an attitude and a skill and a heart of a long-distance runner. And there are several features of this passage that are meant to encourage us in the midst of running the race of faith. And I want to just walk through that together with you and kind of point out some of these there's, a, there's just embedded application in here. Without creating new, uh, a, a new set of points, I want to just go through here and point them out. Let's look at the first one. We do not live for the praise of the world, but the glory of God. Verse 1 reminds us of this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside the weight and sin that so easily clings to us. Let's remember the context in which we live and run this race. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Since, now he's talking about a sports analogy. He wants us to establish in our perspective an an arena in which we compete. And we are to consider who are we competing for? And who is cheering us on? And whose voices do we listen to? When we are competing. Unlike an athlete that might compete for the, the pleasure of the crowd and the cheers of the crowd, we compete for the glory of God. We can either live our lives for the praise of others and for the accolades of others or live our life to play for the praise of God. To Enjoy the joy that comes from knowing that we are obeying God, living in his will, glorifying him, honoring him with our life, fixed on the promises that he offers to us. Or we can live our life trying to figure out and mind read what everyone wants around us and then live according to that. Pleasing one another so that they will then shower us with affection. And our author says, that's not why we run. We don't run for the praise of the crowds. We don't run for their cheers. We don't run for others. We don't run for the world to look at us and assess us and say, you're doing a good job. That's not why we run. By faith, we are are counted among the amazing, the amazing company of men and women who are privileged to be called sons and daughters of God. And we are to... We are to consider those who've gone before us, who have run for the glory of God, trusted in the faithfulness of God, and have received their commendation. We are to, re- we are to run with them in their company for the glory of God. This is the context of our life. We belong to the people of God. We belong to God, our Father. We do not belong to the world. And therefore, we don't live our lives in such a way to, to earn their praise. And that can, that can influence so much of what we do in our life. If we want to be encouraged, how do we apply the life of faith, a genuine faith in the midst of a culture that, that increasingly does not know or worship God? or care about what God thinks? Well, the first thing is to know we don't live for them. We don't live for their praise. We don't live for their favor. We don't live for their reward that the world offers. We live for God. We are his, and we belong to him. And to encourage us, we are reminded that we belong to God with a great company of people, men and women, who are part of the family of God, Noah and Moses, Abraham, Sarah, Rahab, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The list goes on and on and on. All of these people who are commended for their faith, people that we see as heroes of the faith, and we run with them. They have finished the race. They have kept the faith, and they have received the reward that was prepared for them. And so as we live, we remember who we run with, They remain witnesses for us, ready to testify and ready to encourage us with shouts of joy in our striving. You can do it. Keep going. Trust in God. Depend on him. When you are weak, God is strong. Why might these people in the first century who are struggling need to be reminded of this? Here's a good reason. The whole, their whole context is filled with people who are rooting to see them fail. There are people around them that are cheering on the failure of Christianity in the church, that are wanting to squelch out Christianity in their culture, that are wanting to persecute, kill, destroy Christians in their culture. You know what it's like to have someone looking forward to your demise? Rooting for your failure? If you've ever felt that, it's a horrible feeling. And so the, the, this pastor comes along and says, I know what that's like. People are rooting against you, but look at who is rooting for you. These people are cheering you on. You have, you have an audience of people that are cheering you on, praising God, reminding you that it is worth it, that the race Continuing in the race is worth it. You will never be disappointed. God is faithful, and their lives are proof of it. Don't live for the praise of the world, but live for the glory of God. And in the midst of that, we're encouraged as we go on in our passage, get rid of anything that weighs you down. Get rid of anything that slows you down. And this is a whole host of things and what slows you down might not be the same thing that slows me down, but maybe there's some things that we have in common. We are to lay aside, our passage says, every weight and every sin that's so, that clings so closely. Oh, isn't that the truth? I mean, there's some things in our life, like sins and temptations that are like Velcro. We just re-rip we it off and just like, comes back. It just keeps sticking to us. It's like Velcro that keeps sticking to us. That's the second half of verse one. And the point of this is, I think, an invitation for a great personal assessment and diagnosis in our life of our own heart. What are some of those things? What are some of those weights? What are some of those things that cling so tightly? What are some of the things in your life that keep you from living out your courageous faith, living an obedient life that God's called you to? The things that stick to you. People pleasing, desire for approval of others, sexual sin, gossip, rage, accomplishments, achievements, financial gain. What are those things that distract you from living a life of faith? What are the things that make it difficult for you to, to lay your life on the altar of God as an act of praise and worship? What are those things? What are the sorts of things that that get in the way of living out genuine trust in God? Our passage says anything that weighs you down. That's how we ought to look at it. Anything that weighs you down. Because we could easily get into this game where we say, well, I know what those big sins are. I I know what the things I shouldn't do and what the Bible says, do not do this. But the wisdom of God's word wants us to think about sin and the things that that hinder our growth in faith a little differently than just, well, I check the box and I don't do these things. Our passage says, anything that slows you down, anything that weighs you down, cast it off. Weights and sins, and these are possibly two different things. We can know what the sins are, The Bible is explicit about those. Anything in God's word explicitly commanded to do or not to do, anything prohibited by God's word is sin, anything that he calls us to do that we fail to do is sin. Those things are easy to understand. God has revealed his word to us, but then there are weights. Then there are things that are really hard to understand. Anything that hinders our progress of faithfulness should be discarded. Each of us then should, should ask ourselves, is this thing helping me honor, love, know God more? Or is it getting in the way? And so we should be honest about that assessment. And what, what weighs you down might not be the thing that weighs me down. The thing that, that hinders your faith might not be the thing. Now, we're not talking about sin. We're talking about just those, those weights, anything that kind of distracts us and gets in the way. Whether it's a, a temptation that, that keeps you from, from enduring in this life of faith? Each of us should ask ourselves that question, is this helping my faith or hindering my faith? And I think because all of us who know Jesus and trust in him have the indwelling Holy Spirit in our life, I think we already know that answer to that question when we ask it. Is this thing encouraging my faith, or is it getting in the way? You already know that answer. You know it right now. And it's that thing. That's the thing that God is wanting to convict us of, to bring to our awareness, and to invite us into casting off so that we can know him, enjoy him, and run that that race with endurance. And there's obviously some things about this race that we've already talked about that we want to get into much more because our passage does as well. And that is this, the agonies of this life are, in some ways, and this is painful, necessary. Exercise is necessary. Suffering is necessary. Pain is weakness leaving the body, as they say, right? (laughs) I don't think that's in the Bible, but do do you know how muscles grow? I don't. (laughs) Uh, But do you know how, like, uh, theoretically, how they grow? You put your muscles under such stress and abuse until the fibers of your muscles rip. That's why you get sore. Because you damage the muscle tissue. And at a cellular level... These fibers are restored and healed. And that process creates that muscle fiber at a cellular level to be thicker than it was before. And these many layers of thickness compound upon one another and it causes your muscle to be bigger than it was before. And that will never happen unless the muscle is abused. I mean, you can use growth hormones and stuff like that, but you just, it looks bigger, but that's not real strength. You don't get stronger, you just... You look bigger, so you give the appearance of growth. But that's not real growth. No pain, no gain. That's, that is, I think, what our passage is getting at. So a lot of times as Christians, we see that pain and discomfort are hindrances to the life that God has promised to us. Well, the Bible says it's actually the avenue. The Bible says it's actually the means by which we grow is suffering. A biblical way of understanding suffering that comes to us in our life. Consider the man or woman in in the gym. Feeling as they push their body to the limit that they are getting weaker and weaker and weaker as the workout goes on. And they train, but they are not discouraged. Why? Because when they are weak, they are strong. They know that. The weaker I get, the more I push my body to the limit, I am more prepared to become strengthened. That's why gyms are packed. Our passage asks us to consider what happens, what happens to the man or woman who is left in a life without suffering, without endurance, without discipline, without training. And our passage says, you do not want the life or the future that comes to a person that is the fruit of a painless life. You do not want to be the person who doesn't suffer because that person does not have the fruit of discipline and joy and character and spiritual growth. Verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline. I mean, it speaks so reasonably to us. All discipline seems painful. I get it. It's all painful. It's not pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's another Greek word, trained. Gymnasium. Gymnasium, where we get that word. Discipline. Training. It's the arena where we get stronger pain is the arena of our progressive sanctification where we learn how to lay aside the things of this world and the things that so easily entangle and where we learn how to be shaped more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ and having the fruit of that training, which is joy, peaceful fruit of righteousness if we don't give up. On the topic of, of pain, let's continue. Much of the suffering we experience is more related to self-pity than to legitimate suffering. Okay, now I'm just picking on you, I feel. I feel like our passage is kind of picking on us. Look at, let's look again at, at verse 3 through 6. <clears throat> Consider him who endured... Such hostility so you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, have you yet resisted the point of su- shedding your blood? It goes on. Here's the point here. So much of our struggle and difficulty in life is not related to actual suffering, but our inability to process difficult things in a healthy way. I really want to see some head nods on that one. Okay, you're with me? Much of our suffering is not legitimate suffering, but it's the shock that comes to us when we expected things to go well and they don't go well. We wallow in that. My my favorite Mark Twain quote is this, I'm an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. What does that mean? He means I spent my entire life Miserable, worrying about so much, and 99% of them never happened. It's my expectation, what I thought life was going to be like. It was the way that I thought and approached suffering. Something would happen that I didn't like, and that consumed me. It ruined my day. And that's most of our suffering today. Most of our suffering today is like this. If your day is ruined at all by someone's opinion being posted online, you're probably not processing pain in a healthy way. If your day is ruined by a negative comment made by you or about you or to you, you probably have a, a too high opinion of yourself or a too low view of God. Life is so hard. Everything is miserable. My life is over. And here's what the author of our passage says. Are you bleeding? Are you bleeding? <laughs> well, well, no, I'm not, I'm not bleeding. Okay. You know, that's what my kids ask when they take a nasty spill and they hit their head or they, they, they fall down and they start screaming and crying. <laughs> is, is, is there blood? No, there's no blood. Oh, okay. And what happens? They start to calm down. It's so weird. It's like, wait, did that pain not hurt as much? No, it was the shock and fear of what that suffering could mean. And they say, is there blood? We say, there's not blood. You're Okay dust yourself off, get back up, and within seconds, they're okay. Much of our suffering is fear of suffering rather than legitimate suffering. Now, I acknowledge that I'm, ten- an intent- I'm intentionally kind of being obnoxious. I'm going a little too far, and now I need to walk back a little bit because there's obviously legitimate suffering without any blood, there's suffering that's not physical at times and often most of the worst kind of suffering is not physical there is a kind of agony there is a suffering that doesn't involve blood there's grief there's loss there's betrayal there's trauma there's different kind of suffering and pain that doesn't require physical pain but we but we are to see all kinds of pain and suffering within a certain context of our expectations. That's what this is is trying to get at. What was your expectation for your life? Is your expectation that that your measure of the good life is a pain-free life? Then you will suffer deeply. And life will be no fun. If your measure of a good life is peace and comfort, have you forgotten about Jesus? And that's what our author says. He says, did you forget about Jesus? Would you consider Jesus? Have you forgotten about God's plan for his own son, whom he loves? We know that God loves his son, and look at God's plan for his son. Well acquainted with grief, a life of suffering, and endured the cross, dying alone, ashamed, full of taking our guilt. Another analogy here is used for the good father and the child he loves. If your child lies, the absolute most unloving thing that you can do is to bring no discipline to your child, no pain. That's an unloving thing. Well, I don't want them to be unhappy. That's an unloving thing. But discipline, discipline is different than punishment. We know this as, as parents. Punishment can be punitive, right? It could be like making a child suffer and pay for what they did wrong. But discipline is discipline. Discipline, the purpose of discipline is love. The purpose of discipline is flourishing of our child. The purpose of discipline is wholeness, to bring life to bring truth, to bring righteousness. Human parenting is imperfect, right? Speaking as a parent, when I discipline, it's all our kids in the big kids room? Okay. (laughs) As a parent, discipline is, my discipline is very imperfect. There's a little bit of, I need to teach them a lesson. There's a little bit of uh, vengeance, for their discipline. You wronged me. Now it's payback, right? There's a little bit of anger. There is a little bit of love and desire for wholeness and training and righteousness, but it's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, it ha- you ever discipline and, and you're like, yeah, I didn't do that right. Try better next time. But sometimes you discipline and you're like, that was really hard, but it was, it was good. It was right. It was true. And that's what we want to do more of. The point here is like if, if human fathers and human mothers can discipline a little bit in truth, how much more can God the Father, who is perfect, discipline in perfect truth? And yet it brings discipline. It brings pain. It does bring some suffering. If we can discipline with an ounce of good, how much more can God, who loves us completely and has promised our future wholeness and righteousness, And his perfect love, how could he, when he sees sin in our life, not discipline us? He disciplines those he loves. God's God's love, when he brings suffering into our life, is not like human love that is flawed. That needs to be mistrusted or confused. It's love that we can trust. When God allows from his hand suffering in our life, we can trust He knows what's going on. It's for our good, even if we are not aware of it. Suffering will always hurt. What are your expectations? Suffering will always hurt. Suffering will always be painful. It's not meant to be peaceful. The remedy here is not to pretend that life is not hard. It's not to say, well, life isn't hard. I'm just going to not think about it. Nor is it um, the point here to perform our way through life, to prevent, you know, just people thinking poorly of us. We, we shouldn't perform. We shouldn't pretend, nor is it a, a way to just avoid difficulty at all costs. You see, we usually have two remedies, one of two remedies to suffering in our life. We give up or we dig in. That's it. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm out. That's giving up. Or we dig in and we say, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to beat this. You, and if you have more than one kid, you probably have one of each of those that do that, right? You have one kid that you confront in their sin and their lies. You lied, and I know it. I'm so sorry. I'm the worst child ever. Please forgive me. I'm, you know, I, I'll put myself up for adoption. I'm so sorry. I, I mean, they just wallow in it and they're please forgive me. Please tell me you love me. Please tell me you love me. You know, you say like you you sin. You lied. You're not going to the birthday party, and they just like they're a mess. And then the other kid, you're like, you lied. You're not going to the birthday party. What does they say? I didn't really want to go to the birthday party anyway. (laughs) Works for me, right? So so they dig in. They fight it. They say, no, your discipline doesn't bother me. I'm not going to let life hurt me. I'm not going to let life hurt me. See, both of those are flawed. Both of those reactions are flawed. Using the human parenting analogy, if you if you have the, if you know what it's like to be a parent who loves, and this is why God brings suffering into our life. Our remedy is clear and to the point. What do we do if we shouldn't do one of those two? If both of those are on the wrong side of the spectrum, what are we to do? It's it's clear here. We don't have to wonder. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what that means it means that the fruit of suffering can be joy when it points to Jesus. All suffering is painful, all suffering hurts, all suffering is also temporary when our suffering points to Jesus. If suffering comes into our life and we just freak out and lose our minds, we wasted our suffering. We wasted it. It was we just suffered for no point. If the goal in the midst of our suffering is to just merely not suffer any longer, we will learn nothing about how to, how to not suffer in that same way again. We will learn nothing from that lesson. We will learn nothing of God. We will learn nothing of our need for him and we will have suffered and it will be wasted. But if the goal of our life, if it's, if it's to be free from suffering, we'll be crushed by the weight of this world. Everything will bother us. Every comment, every post, every failure, every every circumstance that doesn't meet our expectation, everything will crush us. But consider Jesus. That's where our focus is meant to be taken. Consider him. When you're running this life of faith, look at Jesus. That's where our focus is taken. And instead of being weighed down by everything in this world, we are to be liberated as we consider Jesus who suffered to the point of death and did it with joy knowing in what his suffering accomplished the rescue of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, and his love forever. You remember in the opening chapter of Hebrews, if you were with us, what did we learn about Jesus? The very opening verses, we learn that all things are made by him, for him, and through him, we learn that Jesus created the world and all things in it. We learn that he is the exact imprint of Um, of the nature of God and the perfect expression and radiance of the glory of God, we learn that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's all his, right? Jesus did not create, who did not create a world of suffering, submitted to a world of suffering so that the fruit of his suffering would be our rescue. Jesus didn't have to do this. And so we see these like big bookends on Hebrews as we come to the close, we remember the beginning. Jesus didn't create a world of suffering, but he willingly submitted himself to a world of suffering so that the fruit of his suffering would be our salvation. And he did it with joy. I'm not saying, and the Bible doesn't say he enjoyed suffering. Enjoying dying is different than having a bedrock Anchor of joy in the faithfulness of God. Jesus was the only person, he was the only person undeserving of suffering and he stood in our place for the ultimate suffering. He's the only one who was undeserving of that treatment. You see, we're we're deserving of suffering. We're deserving of discipline. And Jesus was undeserving of it. And yet he did that. He stood in our place, taking our shame, taking our guilt, taking our sin, taking the punishment that we deserved. He stood in our place to take the ultimate suffering, which is the wrath of God, which is, which is the punishment of death for sins. sin. The Bible says here that he went to the cross despising the shame. This is an interesting phrase. What, is it, what does that phrase mean? It means this. The cross was, as we know, a symbol of shame, a symbol of failure, a symbol of guilt and punishment. And under such intense suffering, Jesus kept his eyes fixed on the joy set before him, on the promise of God, on the glory of God, and seeing to the end, he endured the race of faith and trust in God for our rescue. Our failure, our shame, our guilt, our punishment, it all fell on him. And he's the only one capable of taking all of that guilt and bearing the weight of all that guilt to the cross. And by doing that, the cross, which was a symbol of guilt, shame, punishment, and failure, now brings salvation, forgiveness, rescue, wholeness, and life. Now what is shamed has been despised. What is shamed now loses its power. What was meant to be a symbol of failure was Jesus' greatest triumphant moment. Now, what do we do? Oh, we, we get up and we obey. I mean, what do we do in light of all that? We look at our hearts. We, we, we look uh, at our sin, not in a self-loathing way, But in a a joyful way, glad that God reveals to us the things that hinder our faith, we cast those things aside, confessing them to God, repenting of our sins, knowing that repentance brings life. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not distracted by what others think of us. We are more concerned with the assessment of God than the assessment of others who are constantly evaluating our worth and identity. We see Jesus who suffered and endured and we obey knowing that this isn't about us as the runner, but this is about another runner. It's about the runner, Jesus, who finished the race for us, accomplishing what we couldn't accomplish on our own strength so that by grace and through faith, we could honor him, glorify him in our life. That's why in verse 12, he says, Well, then, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. See, that's interesting. What is lame may be put out, not be put out of joint. He knows that we are weak he knows that we're wounded. He knows that we go through this life not as strong athletes of faith, but ones that are very imperfect. But if we continue to allow the things that hinder us to weigh us down, to distract us from Christ, to take our eyes off of God, we're taught in Hebrews a warning here, then there'll be no sacrifice left for us. If we do not rest in Jesus, there's no other hope. We will not finish that race. We will not win that race. We will not receive the reward that we long for. But let's look to Jesus so that we're, in, instead of, of losing, you know, losing a hip in our race, we would be healed, strengthened. See, we're strengthened not by, he doesn't say like pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Try harder, run faster. No, it just says, it says, look more intently on Jesus and he will heal you. He will give you the courage and the, the strength to endure. What does it mean for us? When, when, when it's hard to obey, do it anyway. When it's difficult to obey, do it anyway. When something is in the way of your faithfulness, then remove it, cast it off, change it. Because what is unhealthy doesn't get healthy on its own. In fact, it gets worse. Worse, It decays. It gets more injured. I'm having a lot of pain. Maybe I'll just keep running through it. No, don't do that. Like, <laughs> you, need heal. you need to be healed. We obey. We repent. We cast off what hinders us so that what is lame would be healed, would be whole, would be strengthened. That's the race of faith that we run together.